Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the public health and medical journal club podcast for anyone trying to figure out what to do to improve their health through listening to the news. I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health here at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I'm here with Don Thea and Chris Gill, as always, from the Department of Global Health. And we are in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org. That's www.pophealthex.org, where you find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And as always, we just want to remind you, if you're listening on iTunes, go ahead and Give us a rating if you can. It will help other people find us, and uh, we'd really appreciate it. I also want to give you a a little bit of an update. So uh, I looked online, and it turns out that we have had, uh, over the past 90 days, about 6,000 downloads. So thank you to all those in the audience for supporting us. Now, as, From all over the world. Well, so that's what I was going to go next. So Not the majority, just Togo anymore. <laughs> not, the maj- not just Togo anymore. That should be our tagline. <laughs> Free associations. We're not just for Togo anymore. All right. Uh, so the majority are, are from the U.S., but can you guess where our our next biggest download countries are from? We're Kazakhstan. In the top five. We're not in Kazakhstan yet. Shoot. We haven't made the big time yet. Uh, where, the, where the next biggest one is? Yeah, the next the next three or four, five. It's, it's, Japan. Um, nope. It's uh, Russia. No. Brazil. UK. UK is number three. <gasps> Germany. Germany's number two. Oh, wow. France. Denmark. Oh, Denmark. And Australia. Ah, yes. Denmark. And and presumably the reason Denmark and Germany are places Because you have family member there. That I I <laughs> I do some teaching you in those places. There and and downloaded us while you were there. I, my, so uh, my wife just told me this morning she's in Tanzania and she downloaded from Tanzania so we could get some download stats. <laughs> there we go. For Tanzania. So when you see those online, you'll know that that's her. All right. On to the show. So today. In our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we, we should do a, a show in Denmark we, or Tanzania. For our fans. Or, yeah, or, I like we should it. Go on a grand European tour. tour. Can we afford that? Do we have budget for that? We have no budget. I'm we do. pretty sure that's great to hear. <laughs> have, this is completely budgetless. Are you sh- in fact, this we're we're not in the godly studio. We're actually in the back of Chris's <laughs> you know, car. Do you know the, why, why it is why, that we have to wash our hands before we come into the godly studio? I don't know because cleanliness is <laughs> godliness. Oh. <laughs> Nick, strike that. That is so That's coming out. Oh, no, oh, no. It's no. oh, terrible. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I've been itching okay. to say that for many episodes. Okay, I'm going to go back to the beginning of the script here. We're just going to start over. Back to, back to Tanzania. Okay, okay. Oh, now, on to the show. Okay, so today in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, oh, I can't <laughs> I wish you hadn't done that. Oh, my, my pleasure. Right. My pleasure. We are going to go in a bit of a different direction from usual, as if we haven't already, <laughs> because we're going to review a study that that uh, doesn't actually come from the news, but rather comes from television, uh, which is we are going to look at the study that is the evidence behind a supplement that you can buy online. Supplement is called Prevagen, and we're going to talk about its relationship to uh, improved memory. Then the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we are going to talk about uh, whether or not industry should be allowed to conduct their own research on on products or devices or drugs that they are going to be uh, making profit off of. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that put a smile on our faces or Chris will uh, make us wait a very long time before getting to something really interesting, <laughs> I promise. What? Okay. It's so all let's, about the journey. Let's get into it. <laughs> With our first segment. So it's a segment heavy metal one, band, isn't it? <laughs> we are going to get into a, a, an article that looked at um, the relationship between a supplement called Prevagen and improved memory. And this is something that uh, we've seen advertised on television quite a bit. And this builds really nicely from one of our previous episodes in which Chris said, I believe the quote was, jellyfish ain't babies. Well, we're coming back to jellyfish in this episode. And it builds... On I our, don't remember that quote. You don't remember jellyfish ain't babies, Nick? Can what we get a? Can we get a? Yep, Nick is agreeing. I don't even remember the context. It. You said it. Uh, jellyfish the kind of ain't thing babies. I, would say. I, God, I guess I need jellyfish. some prevagen. You may need some prevagen. <laughs> Lester jelly babies. And it builds on our last episode where we were talking about calcium supplement because this, in some way, relates to calcium regulation, which we'll get into. Uh, before we begin, uh, so given my recent history of inability to pronounce things. I just want to announce up front that I'm going to be butchering the name of the protein if we talk about it. 
which uh, I need you guys to help me out with. So what's the name of the compound or protein or whatever it is that we're going to be talking about? Apoequorin. 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 Seriously, Apoequorin. Or Apoequorin. O-A-E-Q-U-O-R-I-N. Apoequorin. Apoequorin. All right. That's a, that's a 50 cent word right there. That is a, it's a, it's a GRE word. Uh, <laughs> I would not get that one on the GRE. In fact, I went and looked it up. And if you were to use that word in Scrabble, that's a 22 point word. <laughs> now, of course, you couldn't do it because you wouldn't have enough letters, but I did check it out. I also looked it up. It's a word that's never been used in the Scripps National Spelling Bee, at least to date, <laughs> though I suggest that they use it. All right. So this study was uh, published in the, so, the, so sorry, I should say the, the, the study that is cited on the commercials for the, the product. Uh, the study that was cited was published in the journal Advances in Mind-Body Medicine in winter of 2016. Uh, and this article describes the Madison Memory Study. It studied the effects of a supplement containing a apoequorin verbal learning in older adults in the community. Uh, the lead author was David Moran. Moran Daniel. Moran. Daniel? Daniel Moran. Sorry. I apologize. Um, who is the director of manufacturing sciences at Quincy Bioscience in Madison, Wisconsin. Which is the organization that produces this product. And the name of the commercially available supplement for Apicorporin is Prevagen. Um, so as noted, uh, this seems to be, as far as I understand, this is a protein that was originally discovered in jellyfish. Uh, and so we're not going to get into, in this podcast, I assume, my fears of jellyfish. But... Uh, I did look it up. Uh, it has a WebMD page that describes it. So it says Apicorin is a protein that was obtained in 1962 from a specific type of jellyfish that glows. And when it's exposed to calcium, the protein and calcium bind to blue light. And for more than 40 years, Apicorin has been used to show how calcium works inside cells. Recently, it's been manufactured on a larger scale as a dietary supplement Prevagen. I have no headlines for this one because it's not a new study, and I don't know that it got any headlines at the time. I spent 10 minutes watching CNN I or do MSNBC, know that that's where I hear about it. it. I hear about it when I'm at the gym. It's the jellyfish I'm on drug. the treadmill, and I hear this announcement for Prevagen, which always reminds me of the, the Saturday Night Live take on uh, when they did their takeoff on CNN, and they say, you're watching CNN, so be careful on that treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, okay, so Don, uh, let me start with you uh, and tell us what they did and what they found in the study. And specifically, I want you to answer whether or not, if this is true, I can just go to the source and just eat jellyfish. Oh, oh that's a bad idea. Bad idea? That's bad a bad idea. idea. Don't eat jellyfish. Got it. Oh, you know, the Japanese eat jellyfish. I, absolutely. I've had jellyfish. No, absolutely. I looked it up. I actually got some recipes. It's not so great, but it's not so bad. It's also difficult to cook because it's mostly water. Yeah. You have anyway, to eat it raw. We are <laughs> slightly on a tangent. <laughs> slightly. All right. Um, so as Matt mentioned, this article was published- uh, 2016, winter. 2016 in Advances in Mind-Body Medicine. And these authors, um, as Matt mentioned, who are also happen to be um, uh, principals in the in the company, conducted this study. And and in the paper, they cite an untested hypothesis, which is the calcium hypothesis of um, brain age, aging. And they and they they cite some um, uh, preliminary evidence and in vitro evidence that seems to indicate that high levels of intracellular calcium have a deleterious effect on nerve cells. And that's something that has been observed in vitro or in test tubes, um, in the laboratory. Um, and they, they, they reason that if one could, um, reduce the level of calcium intracellularly in neurons, then they might um, do better. They might live longer. They might last longer. And, and one of the things that they cite is a study that looked at the oxidative stress um, of, of hippocampal neurons in vitro and that um, this product uh, apparently made those neurons um, a little bit easier to tolerate that kind of oxidative mm -hmm. stress. They okay. also, these same authors, previously published a an article in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior, uh, when was this? This was in 2015, um, where they looked at, uh, uh, the title of that paper is A Novel Mechanism of Cognitive Enhancement in Aged Dogs with the Use of Calcium Buffering Proteins. And what they did is they identified dogs with with cognitive dysfunctional syndrome. And these are dogs that are older and they are, I guess, fairly poorly behaved. And they gave these dogs 
not in a um, not in, in a randomized fashion, but not in a placebo-controlled fashion. Um, Two point five milligrams of this um, substance, and then they did a bunch of um, sort of veterinary memory tests, and they were able to sh- seemingly show that there was some improvement in the the behavior of the dogs. And based on that, they decided that they would go ahead and test this in humans. Okay. So that's the paper we're going to talk about. So what they did was they. Um, they, um, I de- they, 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 by by use of flyers in Madison, which is the 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 the, the area surrounding where um, the manufacturers is, is they they sent out flyers and they got volunteers who self-identified as, as people who are concerned with or having problems with their cognition mm-hmm. in terms of memory and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, they 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 were community dwelling adults. They weren't institutionalized adults. They were of um, very uh, wide range of ages, from I think forty to ninety five years old. Um, and they enrolled them. And the inclusion criteria was a hi- um, history of um, uh, that they were healthy, that they were between forty and ninety five, that they had concerns about their memory loss, and that they were able to comply. That the authors felt that they would be able to comply with the rigors of the of the of the study. The exclusion criteria were that they could not have had a history of significant neurological disease. They did not have memory impairment disorders, major dis- depressive disorder, uncontrolled medical condition, history of hypersensitivity to the medication. Um, or that the su- or in the investigator's opinion that the subjects would be unlikely to comply with the protocol. Um, so they identified um, 221 subjects um, who they assessed at baseline <clears throat> with a screening test called the AD8, which is screening interview, which essentially um, categorized all of these um, subjects into either no or very mild cognitive impairment or worse cognitive impairment. Um, it was based on a zero to five point scale. So anybody that, that qualified, anybody that scored zero to one or zero to two on that five point scale were considered to have minimal or no cognitive impairment. Um, and they then proceeded with, um, doing their study on all of the individuals that had been recruited, those who had mild impairment as well as those who had um, more severe impairment. And they randomized the, these individuals three to two. So three individuals were in the exposed group and two were in the placebo group, although they don't really mention very much about the actual random, randomization procedure. And what they did is they they gave they, they instructed people to take one pill of this Prevagen um, every day um, for 90 days. And um, what they then did was that they applied these, this battery of tests, this, this, uh, a battery of nine cognitive tests to individuals um, over, I think it was 30, 60, 90 days. And then they um, did the analysis at 90 days. And the intent was to look at what was the difference in a bunch of memory and executive functioning measures um, between in individuals or in groups between what was observed at 90 days and what was observed at at baseline. Um, it was um, placebo controlled. Um, they state that the pills that they used um, looked and tasted identical. Um, the, 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 the placebo contained rice flour and the, um, the experimental medicine contained 10 milligrams of rice flour and 10, milli- uh, uh, 10 milligrams of Prevagen and then the rest um, rice flour. So apparently they were unable to distinguish this. Um, the analysis was pretty standard. They did paired and independent t-tests. They did a repeated measures analysis of covariance and the covariance that they used in that analysis was what were the baseline differences between, between the groups. Um, and as far as the results are concerned, um, really the, f- the first line of the of the study kind of says it all. I mean, the first line of the results section kind of, in my opinion, says it all. It says, essentially, they said there was no difference when they looked at the results of these nine, um, these nine cognitive tests when they included all of the um, individuals. However, what they did notice when they did their subsequent analyses was that if they, if they, if they drilled down into the group that had mild cognitive impairment, that group that at baseline had zero to two in terms of this 88 score. and so the they, healthier ones. The healthier ones. And they looked at only two of the various, um, uh, two of the nine various cognitive tests 
that they claim to have found a difference. And that difference um, implied that the, that the people who had been taking this product had increased ability to recall something called the ISL, which is the International Shopping List, where they give you um, an, a, a, a list of sort of, um, you know, random objects that you would find on your shopping list. And then they ask you what was on that list 25 minutes later. And they did that sequentially at those various times um, over time. And, 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 they, and they did that for the international shopping list. And then I think it's the international shopping list recall. Right. In um, which they did it 25 minutes later and you had to do the same thing. Right. Remember the same thing. So list. variation on the same yep. thing. Um, but then there were these other th- there were these other seven tests that they did for the entire group um, as well as for this subgroup, and they don't really report on those. And it's important to, to um, I think, to state that the group that they are reporting on comprise a small subset of the larger group. And in fact, only 43% of the accrued subjects are really um, – Described in this analysis and and are described as um, uh, having having this effect. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, so, Chris, let me then turn it over to you. And can you give us your give us your take on this study? Uh, what were the the pros and the cons? And what's your ultimate? Uh, well, we can come back to what your ultimate decision on it is. Okay. Well, um, so you know when we when we're with our students, we uh, tend to go through a, a sort of a systematic approach to looking at the results of clinical trials and randomized controlled trials specifically. And so I'd just like to apply that construct here instead of to say, like, you know, if, if this was a test case for students, what, how would we approach this? And I would say, okay, like, you've got a randomized controlled trial. So what you want to know, first of all, is what is the primary endpoint of the study? And has that been pre-specified? And in this case, it does not appear to have been pre-specified. Um, you would like to see that the primary aim is built around some sort of statistical uh, power assumptions, and there are no power assumptions in this this paper. You would like to see that if this is a randomized trial, that the randomization succeeded in randomizing the subjects. And normally we do that by looking at the table one, which looks at the baseline demographics of the participants. And they really don't do that. They like tell you their sex and their age. And that is all the information we have about these these individuals. Yep. And so that is completely skipped. And since this is alleged to be a blinded uh, trial, we would like to see what was the method used for blinding, but they don't tell us. Um, we would like to know if this was double blind, exactly how did they blind the subjects and how did they blind the people who were doing the ascertainment and collecting the data. And they don't explain either of these except to describe the construction of the, the pills, pill. right. which is not, which is part of the blinding strategy, but it is not a complete description. It's not an adequate description of the blinding. Um, and similarly, you would like to see some evidence as we did in a paper, I think we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, uh, providing some empiric evidence that the blind Finding was successful. Like I think that was what was the study we did where um, uh, some people were were queried at the end. Did you know which it was the it was the um, it was the stent study, right? Did you know which group you had been randomized to? Right. People could not tell, uh, and so that is you know good evidence that the blinding was successful. So they did not do that here. Um, now, so right away, my my Epi 101 first semester MPH students checklist, they have struck out on every single category here. Um, uh, and in addition, I think we would like to see that the study was based within some context of biological plausibility. And so we've got this very interesting apoequorin protein, which causes jellyfishes to glow when uh, the calcium is present. And this interesting protein uh, substrate called silenterazine is present. When you put those together, it releases blue light, and it is very cool. But that does not, you know, and it is through calcium, but that does not mean that this is a, a solution to dementia. Now, there have been animal models and in vitro models where they've shown that dysregulation of calcium in neurons is associated with older neurons. So there is some plausibility that changes in, in vitro, calcium. not in vivo. Right, in vitro, excuse me. There's some plausibility that, that calcium is involved somehow uh, in you know, aging of neurons. But with that said, calcium in the body is involved in everything. 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 So you're saying that everything. alone doesn't mean anything. So that, that like doesn't put it into a unique category. Everything is related to calcium in the body because it is a second messenger for like practically all biological processes. So this is like useless information. And then the so 
if this were to work, right, you'd have mm-hmm. to have some reason to believe it would work beyond this experiment that was done in dogs, which does not persuade anybody. So for it to work, though, you'd say, okay, the protein has to be absorbed intact into the bloodstream. So you swallow this pill and the the this, the apoequorin protein has to not be digested by stomach digestive juices. And in one of these safety studies that they, they cite on their website, it, it describes the chemical properties of apoequorin. It turns out that it is exquisitely sensitive to pepsin, which is the primary digestive enzyme, enzyme secreted by the stomach. First contact with the bile, body is a bath in pepsin, which will turn apoequorin into a, a slurry Slurry, <laughs> love the word of, of of individual amino acids. So, assuming that doesn't happen, and there's no reason to believe it because they've never shown that it's absorbed intact, it then gets is now in the bloodstream. We assume it's gotten into the bloodstream somehow. Uh, it then has to get across the blood-brain barrier. And what we know about the blood-brain barrier is that it, it allows very small molecules like oxygen and water uh, to pass freely, and that larger molecules like sugars and, and amino acids are, are transported through active mechanisms that regulate their protein. But larger proteins like antibodies cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, uh, and the very few large molecules that can are high, highly lipophilic, which means that they're very, they're, they like to embed themselves in lipid membranes, in, in fatty membranes. And apoequorin is hydrophobic, which means it is, one of the, it is within that category of proteins that is almost exclusively systematically excluded from crossing the blood-brain barrier. And so none of this makes any sense. And then we get into the data. And I'd like <laughs> you to talk about that. So before we even look at the, at the actual results of the study, the whole thing already feels to me like this, is, this doesn't make any you sense. Are, you are buying the, the, buying the logic for why we should think this would work in the beginning. All right, so then let's, let's, let's get into the data. So I want to go back to a point that, Don, you raised, which is you mentioned these nine outcomes. Where did you get this idea that there were nine outcomes? No, they're not. A battery of nine... Te- Tests. Where'd you get that? Because that's not in the paper, I don't think. Is it? That's from the online report. That's correct. Yeah. So the actual no, paper that, no, itself sorry, you're right. that's right. doesn't that's right. actually mention. It correct. just mentions right. these two. <laughs> right. It mentions the, the uh, international shopping list and the international shopping list are, remember. Or right. But the supplementary materials available online gives us lots more information. Yeah. But they, which they don't to, tell us about. It doesn't seem to make it into the published which paper. Which doesn't make it into the paper. And if you go and look at the online version, presumably the reason, and this is, goes back to what we talked about in our second segment from our last podcast, is presumably the reason that none of those other ones make it in there is because none of the rest of them are statistically significant. And this is part, again, going back to my... You know, statistical significance. Not that we'd ever poo-poo that. Just no, no. I'm saying um, that statistical significance doesn't. It, or PP that. It, oh, it's not the pro and the con of of <laughs> the, the I, yin I, and yang. <laughs> it's 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 not the thing that should determine what we <laughs> include and not include. Include and not include. But and if yes. you're going to use it, if you're going to use it, uh, you know, the the idea that if you have lots of outcomes, you have lots of study, you know, lots of different uh, measures measures that you use, and then you find the connection between one of the measures and your exposure, but none of the others, you know, it's, it's fair to start to ask, is that real or is that just chance? We just, you know, we did a whole bunch of tests. No, they, they only did nine. So they, let's, say, but they, let's say we did 100 tests. And if you came up positive, you'd expect that just sort of by... The one in 20 chance. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, they didn't do 100. I'm not saying they did. They did nine, but they only found one that was significant. Now, now to further that along, as Don points out, they didn't actually find this statistically significant relationship, which is what they're so focused on here, in the entire data, in the entire small number of subjects who were in the study, which is 218, which is not a lot of people to be in a study to begin with. They found it only in the subset of data, as you said, of the healthy participants, which is only about half the data. So now you're telling me we're going to carve this data up in half, and there I find a benefit in the healthy group. In a subset of the outcomes. In a subset of the data. Right. Okay, so that starts feeling a little bit more like maybe that's Cherry just picking? a chance finding. Mm-hmm. If you find, you know, remember, if you take all the data, you're essentially averaging together all the outcome data for, uh, across these two groups, the healthy group and the sick group, which suggests to me that if you find a benefit in the healthy group, there's probably and you didn't find a benefit overall, there's probably some suggestion of harm 
in the in the unhealthy group. Mm-hmm. When you average those together, you get back to uh, no effect, nothing, no effect, right? But you take out one subset and benefit. Now it doesn't always have to be that way, so I should say I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because even in the online report, which pre- presents a lot more of the data, they never present the data on the two, three to eight category, whatever it is, the the health, the sick group, right? And so without that, it's very hard for me to say that I don't think that this is just sort of a, a chance, you know, potentially just a chance finding. Yeah. More to the further to that point, um, you know, the statistics in this paper are just odd. I mean, this is, I, I think I used the phrase last time, but the, th- this is littered with p-values. It's just <laughs> yeah, riddled it with is. p-values might be another way to say it. There's p-values everywhere and such that they don't actually make a lot of sense. So what they've done is, in one of my pet peeves in general is, when you present data, you want to present the data first. Then you want to present any comparisons that you do. They don't actually present the data here. They only present the change from baseline in the scores for the number of people, things you could remember on the shopping list. As a percentage. As a percentage, a percent change. So they all start at 0%, which says, I'm just going to assume that at baseline, both groups are equal. Regardless of whether or not they were. you can't assume that. It may not be true. It may not be true. Now, they have a statistical way of dealing with that, but that's not what they present here in their their figures. They just sort of say, let's look at the change from baseline in each of the groups, even if the groups were different at baseline. And so you find a 10% increase, 10% increase in the group that got the Prevagen, let's just say, in the uh, zero to two group and a 3.79% increase in the group that didn't. So that's an absolute difference of about 7%. If you assume they started at the same place. Okay, 7%. Uh, your, the average score on this checklist uh, was about 24. So a 7% increase on a score of 24, does that mean they remembered... Like a point. One additional item? One, maybe two additional things. Does that have any clinical meaning? Uh, I'm not sure it does. I don't really know, but it's without knowing a lot of the details here, without more information, it's very hard to draw any conclusions that this is anything but, you know, presumably potentially a, a just a chance findings. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put a lot of weight into this without more evidence. And I certainly wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. without more trials say that I could I could conclude anything from this. Yeah, I totally agree. And and uh, and another thing that is it is a little bit um, perplexing, perplexing. Uh, about this is the um, the sort of lack of a clinical hook in terms of what do these numbers mean. Um, so in the statistical analysis section, they 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 talk a lot about this statistic called the Cohen's D, um, which I was not familiar with and had to go onto the Wikipedia website to look it up, which informed me that Cohen's D is a way of getting a standardized the statistical size, test, of a statistical Cohen's test, D. right? Yeah. But it is based purely on an, an analysis of standard deviations, which is separate from clinical relevance. Absolutely, it is simply a statistical feature of the, of the shape of the data, but it doesn't tell you anything about the magnitude of the effect from the patient's perspective. Like, just because the Cohen's D is big, little, or small does not mean the patient will experience a big, little, or small benefit. It has not... The two phenomena are completely delinked. You could have a a Cohen's D of one, which is, I, I think, it's not the best, but it's like a very high, what they consider to be a very high effect. And yet, that could translate into no... Perceptible difference on the on the the part of the patient. So you got to ask yourself, why would they why would they do it that way? Why wouldn't you, you know, if you're trying to set up the study, if you really wanted to to figure out whether this thing worked, you would want the patients to be reporting their benefit from it, and 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 you would report those data in your in your results section um, to emphasize the clinically relevant. Uh, response to this product. Instead, they've gone to a statistically uninterpretable. Uh, measure of effect, which I find to be a little bit of a dodge and weave. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'd go that far. I, I, I don't share that same sentiment. I, I certainly don't think it was a dodge and weave. Uh, I don't think it has to be, I should say. I mean, the Cohen's D is a legitimate statistical test that people do use. I'm not a fan, but more to the point, I'm not the fan of testing, right? I, w- I want to know about the size of the effect and the confidence interval around it. And there's not a single confidence interval in this in this paper, and there's almost no effects. In fact, when they talk about effects, what they're talking about is Cohen's D. But that's, as you said, that's just a normalized 
uh, uh, value. Of standard deviation. It doesn't tell you anything. What was the actual effect size difference that an individual could remember? And that's never presented in this paper, which I find you know makes it very very difficult to interpret whether or not I would ever put any weight into this. Yeah, and and you know I think that 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 one of the the graphs in the paper that we have in, in front of us is a histogram, which is a, a bunch of bars that um, look at the effect size over time and the effect size between the placebo group and the intervention group and it goes, you know, the one set of bars goes up, and what we're what we're saying is that it's going up to a to a degree that may be statistically significant if you use a fancy test, but has marginal to no significance in terms of its potential effect on, in an individual. But that's the graph that's used on the TV and on 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 all of the all the advertisements. It's a very impressive looking graph, sure. but it's not really reflective of, uh, of, of, of what's going on clinically. I, I agree. I think it doesn't tell the story, and it, it tells the story only in a very select subset of the data that, that you know, when we start chopping up the data that much, we, it's not surprising that you might find something, whether or not that has any meaning. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, uh, and this is something that we got into, I think, probably in one of our first or second podcasts in our second segment, but is it fair for me to uh, question why, I mean, this, this, is, this is kind of a big deal if it, if it were to work, right? I mean, memory loss yeah. is, a, is a significant problem. And if I could take a pill that would significantly improve my memory, that would be a big deal. I would certainly do it. Why, why am I right to question why this wasn't published in... New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, let's say not the New England Journal because it's a small study. But even if it were a, a, a bigger a neurology you know, journal, a reason you know, mm-hmm. I, I've never heard. I don't. I'm not. I'm not trying to say I know that you know there's something wrong with this journal, but I've never heard of it such that I wouldn't suspect that it is uh, first tier journal. Certainly, my look uh, in the literature suggests it's not. It's not maybe even the first tier journal within the subset of of um, journals that you might publish this in. Is that fair for me to 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 wonder that, or do you think I'm being uh, overly critical? Well, you know, in some in some of the um, some of the mat- sort of ancillary materials I've I've read, it is claimed that this was this paper was published in a non peer reviewed journal. But I actually contacted yeah. I contacted yeah. the um, the the uh, the journal um, um, publishers themselves, and I and I asked them, was this particular article sent out for peer review? And they said, yes, absolutely, of course it is. Um, and I asked to see uh, the peer review um, remarks, and they were not willing to send me the, which the peer not, review Which comments. is not uncommon. Right, I suspect right. most journals wouldn't do that. Probably, so that's probably not. No yeah, harm in asking. No, but but um, the, the 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 publisher does say that it has been, been peer reviewed. So yep. so one could needs to take it at faith value and assume that it's been sent out. Yep. But I think you know I think a cur- one, one curious thing when I got a copy of that particular issue in which this. This study appears on the inside cover of the journal <laughs> in full page color is an advertisement for the product, for Prevagen. And I, I, I are there, are there I, other advertisements in this there journal? There are a few other advertisements. There's, but that is the big one, right? But that there. is the big one. And, you know, it's it's right on the inside cover. So, I, you know, I, I think that that is a little bit on the dodgy side. Yeah, it certainly it – certainly, um, Feels it feels conflicted somehow. Yeah. Can I can I raise one other issue which has surprised me? So um, most journals insist on uh, whether it's a clinical trial or an observational study, some kind of ethics statement. They insist on a statement that says this was True. reviewed by an ethics board, that consent was sought from patients, those sort of things. Now they do say that they got consent. I believe I'm pretty sure I read that, but there's no discussion of whether or not this was IRB reviewed. It doesn't appear that this trial was ever registered with a clinical trials uh, registry, which is something that is uh, strongly encouraged. I, there's no, as far as I know, there's no legal requirement to register, but it's it's typically done. And many journals, many of the higher tier journals will insist they won't publish if you a uh, clinical trial if you haven't published in one, uh, pre-registered your study in one of these registries. And I see no evidence of that. And I looked online and didn't find it. Mm-hmm. How, however, let me just state that in that prior article that the, the same authors published um, concerning the dogs, they do state that um, all procedures were approved by the Facility Animal Use and Care Committee and were compliant with the guidelines of the Canadian Council on Animal Care. So they certainly did know that okay. that is for something- For the study. For the, for, the pre- for the animal study. Yeah. Okay. But right. uh, no idea how they treated their humans. 
Right. It's just well, surprising they to me. They don't, they don't I, describe it. It surprised me they didn't describe it. It surprised me the journal didn't insist on it. That's usually fairly standard. So I'm, I'm just surprised by that. I, I'm not in s- suggesting that I have any reason to believe that it wasn't you know IRB reviewed or anything like that. I'm just saying it's a little surprising not to see that. Yep. Yep. Um, any last comments before we move on? Yeah. Can I just mention that um, it's about three dollars a pill. For this, I think it's one dollar. Is pill. it one dollar pill? Yeah. yeah, and it's 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 that calculates out to about eight hundred and twenty eight dollars per year for a medication that is of or three hundred sixty five dollars a year. Well, if no. it's only one dollar pill, well, sixty nine dollars per bottle and thirty capsules per bottle. Uh, that's that's a, you know one month supply, but it, it t- turns out to be about nine hundred dollars a year. And it, you know, it's it, the, the people. I don't think so. I think it's three hundred sixty five dollars a year. It's a, a dollar pill. No, it's at $70 a bottle, and there's 30 pills in the bottle. Not, not on Amazon. Well, uh, anyway. anyway. Point is, <laughs> it's expensive. It's expensive. It is. Point is, it's expensive. And the point is that it is being marketed to people who, um, you know, have a concern for their, their, their cognitive abilities. And, you know, I, I, I am a little concerned with that particular kind of marketing. Yeah, I agree. I, it, it's a vulnerable population. Um, it is. It's a vulnerable population, and 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 you know the the elderly are subject to all sorts of scams. Um, you know, I think at the very least, at the very least, this this is this this could be considered preliminary um, data. And at the very least, I would think that one would want to try to replicate this under more stringent conditions and and see if in fact uh, yeah. do a proper uh, clinical development plan phase yeah. one phase two phase three clinical trials let's yeah. you know if this stuff is as great as they say we should we should be licensing it i agree and it's this should be this should be if it's if it were true it should be replicable and if it's as we you know have hinted at that it could just be a, a this this odd finding then we'll find that out and that would be worth knowing yep uh and presumably somebody could do that right i mean this is something you can buy over the counter there's no reason uh, somebody else couldn't set up a trial, right? Hey, we can set up a trial. It's, right. only, uh, it's only 90 bucks a bottle or whatever. All right. We can buy some. 60. 60. 60 bucks. Sorry. Right. Can I uh, just end with one comment about this study, which is, did you notice there, was, there were two adverse events? Mm-hmm. Neither of them were se- severe adverse events, but they did note two adverse events, one of which was a patient reported feeling owly. Owly, yeah. I, I liked I that. I missed that. Owly. Reported- Does that mean smarter? <laughs> no, apparently it means grumpy. I actually had to go and look this up. Owly is apparently... I've never heard that term. Uh, I've never heard this too. This is, uh, it means irritable, grumpy, or uncooperative. Uh, supposedly some person is guessing on the internet, so don't take this to mean anything, that uh, owls have tufts of feathers above their eyes, which resemble the furrowed brow of a grumpy old man. Wow, this is apparently what I am. Owly. <laughs> Chris is owly. My wife never heard and this children... Term. Never heard this term before. Now they're, they're going to be psyched when they, they hear are this podcast. Be so psyched! I've been, you know, we traveled to we went skiing yesterday, and, I, and we were driving back. It's a long drive, and guess what we did? We listened to the podcast. You listen to your own podcast. Well <laughs> I done. Do. I do. The kids are. Do all you like, laugh at your own jokes? I, I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> you are your own best audience. Does anybody that? else? Listen, no, no, laugh? because they were all asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no correlation, huh? Uh, I found it very educational. Well, you learned from you. I learned. Wow. Is it possible to learn from yourself? Uh, I doubt it. I... All right, let's move on. So in our second segment, we want to get into an issue that, that comes out of this first, but is, is sort of unrelated in the sense that it, uh, it applies a much broader sense. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the ethics around doing your own research when you are going to profit from the product that you are doing research and whether or not there is an inherent conflict of interest in there or whether or not this is something that is, um, you know, something that just we have to get over because it's the only way to actually get products tested. I mean, it, we I, we should acknowledge up front that it is expensive to run uh, randomized trials. It's expensive to do the uh, research and development that gets you to a product in the first place. I'm talking here about um, uh, largely drugs and, and, and biologics here, but but this is expensive and can't can't necessarily be funded by um, you know Joe researcher in in, in his in his uh, his lab. So um, is this something that we just have to live with? Uh, is it acceptable? Is it problematic? And if so, are there guidelines that we should be following when this is true? So I want to start with you, Chris, because you are the only one of us here who's actually worked in industry. Uh, and give us your give us your take uh, on whether or not we should be skeptical when we see 
an industry-sponsored study or you know, whether we should just accept that that's part of the way that the, mm -hmm. this business mm -hmm. is run? Well, um, so the, the, the question is not whether is, is, is there a conflict of interest when your company could benefit financially from the results of a clinical trial. That is the definition of a conflict of interest. So it's not, it's, okay. there's no ambiguity about this. Okay. There is a absolute ironclad conflict of interest around this. So the question is not whether there is one. The question is, what do you do about the conflict of interest that is inevitable? And, and so in the case of, of FDA uh, sponsored, you know, or F FDA oversight of, of clinical development projects through pharmaceutical companies, the entire clinical development process is built around the, the understanding that there is a conflict of interest at various steps that the, the regulator takes in partnership or collaboration, I guess, partnerships is maybe not the right word, um, to mitigate the conflict of it that, that inevitably exists. And so that, you know, would include things like the... Um, you know, the, the, the sponsor of the research, the company that's developing the product that wants to license the product would not be allowed to do clinical trials until the, uh, the FDA has, has provided investigative new drug uh, approval to go ahead. And that um, creates a, a framework that allows the clinical uh, developer to engage in clinical research, um, but it is not a license to go and do whatever you want. It is a license to enter into a negotiated development process with the FDA. And what that means is that your regulator will review all of your protocols before you implement them, and you will agree upon the, 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 the outcomes of the study and the analysis plan and the methodology. And, you know, the, 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 the regulator will review your assays to ensure that they're valid and that they're measuring the thing that's, that's important to measure. And they will scrutinize basically every aspect of your of your of your 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 development plan because there is a conflict of interest around that. And if all of those steps are, are taken, you can often you know generate uh, valid data. But it requires a, a, a way to step away from the, the conflict of interest and and and, um, and manage that. And who is the, that regulator that that does that that reviewing? Is that the FDA itself? That would be the FDA in the United States or the EMA in in in, uh, in Europe. Um, so now, so so personally. Personnel from the FDA, uh, very in a very detailed fashion, scrutinize all of the steps as they're progressing in right. the development of this new drug. That's right, and and there are key milestones in this in this plan. So um, the first milestone is that you have to present a dossier of information saying why you believe your drug is a or vaccine or device or whatever it is is a good, safe, efficacious drug, device, or vaccine, based on basic science and preclinical data in animals. Um, and if that, if you pass that bar, you're allowed to enter into phase one trials. But then each study has to be reviewed and approved by the regulator um, in sequence. It's not like you can then run all the trials you want. Every one of them is negotiated and every protocol is approved. And then before you can enter into large scale, i.e. phase three trials, you have to go to the regulator, the FDA, and attend what's called an end of phase two meeting, which is a multi-day affair, very intense, um, with you know literally thousands of pages of documentation leading up to it, where you are intensely scrutinized, and all of the evidence you've generated to that date is 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 inspected, and at that point there's a risk benefit analysis made by the regulator that says you know we believe we there, we believe there isn't sufficient evidence to justify going into phase three clinical trials, um, and so the most drugs, vaccines, and devices do not make it to the point of an end of phase two meeting. Mm. Um, most of them fail during phase two because they, they, you know, they recognize that their, their product is not going to succeed. Mm. Um, and so it is, it is, a you know, it is a very, very, very intense, um, bilateral relationship between the sponsor and the regulator. Uh, and the entire thing is built around the, the idea, the, the ideal of mitigating so the, the inevitable conflict of interest. So why didn't the same thing apply to this mm. particular yeah. product? Because this was not an FDA approved product. This is a health supplement, which is exempt from FDA oversight. And does that mean that everything in the health supplement universe likewise does not fall under the same kind of scrutiny in terms of rigorously demonstrating efficacy yeah. and safety. Generally they have a of a they have a buy from this process because they are not and this is where they got into into problems with the FTC because as a health supplement, you can sell your product as long as it's as, as long as it's safe, uh, but you don't have to demonstrate efficacy. But you are not allowed to make health claims, and the the company, the Quincy Biosciences, was making health claims that this is a, a cure for for dementia, a treat, an effective treatment for dementia. That is an, obviously a health claim. Yeah, I don't think they said a cure yeah, for I dementia. Treatment I think for, treatment for. I, I think it, it improve your cognitive ability. I I, I don't know if they think they actually made the claim that it would. 
be a treatment for dementia because the, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty wild claim. But I think by implication, they're saying that here's a pill you can take that, um, that improves memory. Okay. So, okay. So let me, let me, uh, Don, so you're not, you've never been involved in industry sponsored research or have you? No, I haven't. So do you, uh, do you immediately sort of downweight in your review of evidence something if you see it coming, th- th- that it is industry funded? And does it change your mind if the industry funded the trial but didn't run the trial? Does it? Do you make a distinction in your mind? Oh boy, this is you know such a gray area. Yeah. I mean, I think Chris Chris did a really good job of sort of outlining the rigor um, uh, that that the pharmaceutical industry is subject to at the hands of the FDA. And I think that you know it needs to be said that the FDA is really one of the crown jewels in the, in the U.S. regulatory process. They're a huge headache for the pharmaceutical industry, huge, but they have created a level of, of rigor that is unparalleled. And, and I think it's really, really important. So aside from that, I, 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 I totally agree with Chris that it is the definition of a conflict of interest. So if I am to believe results of science that's generated by somebody that has a, the, the potential for a benefit, I want to see some oversight, some measure of objectivity. I yep. want some hands, arm's length um, assessment or involvement that in fact, um, that the, the, there's been, a, there's been an, a, a judgment or an effort by an outside body that is truly unbiased and has no conflict of interest. Yep. And it's becoming more and more important all the time, I, even though we don't get funded really by industry or very rarely do we ever, um, we are required by the university to sign a conflict of interest form for every single research study that we do. It's a really, really fundamental and important concept. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you you both said. I would uh, I would just say, you know, I, my, my uh, level of skepticism is greater when it appears that this is research that has been actually done by industry as opposed to research that has been funded by industry. Right, but, I would agree with that. But even even being funded by it certainly weighs into my calculation when I try to think about what that evidence might mean. It doesn't mean I throw it out. And and again, uh, you know, this is this is a real expensive undertaking. So it's probably uh, we don't have any other alternatives. So I, I'm I'm understanding of that, but uh, it does factor into my calculations. If I could add just one point, and I know we last, need to move on to the last point. section, is is that the the FDA oversight is 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 quite effective at dealing with the conflict of interests around the studies that form the port the dossier, the portfolio of trials that go into licensure decisions. What that doesn't do is have any control over the publication of those. Of those studies, mm. so it, the, the, those are completely delinked. So what you see published in on PubMed is not necessarily reflective of what the FDA sees in its dossier. Mm. And there, there are really examples. Important. There yeah. are examples where the the difference between what the FDA sees and what ends up being published can be striking. I see. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's. Let, let me just add to that because Chris has done a, ni- a nice series of investigations looking at um, what organizations do in fact register their clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov, and once they've been registered, that which they're now um, um, obligated to, how many of them actually then finish filling out that registration with the results of the study? And industry does a lot worse than. Um, academics. Is that right, Chris? We, they, they, they do poorly. Um, I actually have the study right here so we can, we can take a look at that. But the, the, you know, the, uh, to me, the most egregious thing that I found when we were, this was a study I did with Hiroki Saito and we published in, in PLOS One a couple of years ago, looking at transparency of, of industry and non-industry uh, clinical research studies. And we found that that about 30, 30% of all studies that were done never see the light of day in terms of, of either putting their results on clinicaltrials.gov or publishing them in a peer-reviewed journal. And that then if you break it down into subgroups and you look at industry versus non-industry and then the phase of development, we find that systematically the industry sponsored phase two trials are, are vastly underrepresented mm. in the clinical literature that most of that, the majority of those studies, not like some, but actually the majority of phase two studies that are initiated never, never get published. Interesting. Mm. Okay. So we, we clearly are going to have to live with some of this, but uh, it is important for us to keep aware of. Okay. So let me move us on to our, our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, our favorite segment in which we uh, highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs a bit more than we already do. Look at the weird, wacky stuff, or in Chris's case, a look at the amazing stuff 
that goes on in this world. Chris, you want to you wanna take it? Yeah. So um, this one really made me happy. It was a, um, a study, again, in one of my favorite journals, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Wang and colleagues. And the study is called Revealing a 5,000-Year-Old Beer Recipe in China. Okay. And, um, and it is exactly as what they, they, they describe. Um, this was an archaeologic uh, study that was also mixed with um, electron microscopy and um, some some Very chemistry. Cool. Uh, basically, they, you know, w- we know that the, the Chinese had been um, uh, growing grains for about, since about 9000 BCE. So it, it is reasonable to assume that once you have grains, you're soon enough going to have beer because, you know, beer is basically you mix grains with water um, and it turns into alcohol or something horrible, but often it turns into alcohol. And so they, they, they found this um, dig site um, from the the, I mean, one of the Yangshao era, which is between 5,000 and 2,900 BCE, um, and they dug it up. And they found basically a complete brew kit. Um, <laughs> in pottery. Seriously, yeah, That's so it's pretty neat. They had uh, they um, they had big wide um, based pots, yep. right, which are not useful because they're they're so wide, unless you are cooking mash, which is what you know after you malt the. The grains, malting is when you add water to them and then they sprout. And then the sprouting releases enzymes that, that digest the starch and release simple sugars that can then be fermented. And so after you've malted it, you then mash it, which is you heat it to release all the sugar into the into liquid and then yep. you ferment it. Okay. And so these big round um, pots are basically malting, uh, I'm mashing vessels for heating this. And they found the stoves to heat them with, too, little tripod uh, cook stoves. And then they found funnels, which we'd use to filter the beer and get rid of all the, you know, beer is full of sludge and hops and husks of of barley and stuff you don't want to drink, so you got to filter it. And so they had... you know, clay funnels, and then these amphoras, which are narrow at the bottom. And, and you say, well, why does it be narrow at the bottom? What's the point of that? Because you can't stand it up, it'll fall over. But the point is that it allows the sediment to Come sit at the, the bottom and not be there when you're drinking it. So it's a, a convenient way of storing beer. And then, now, this was all very circumstantial, but then they went and they, they actually found that the, these vessels were lined with starch granules, which showed the chemical evidence of, of malting and mashing and husks of various grains, including um, something called, it's a beautiful thing called um, uh, Job's Tears, which is a, a kind of millet seed that can be used to making so beer. Cool. Oh, that was really cool. So beer, beer is obviously around. We know it's been five thousand years. You know, beer's been around longer than five thousand years. But it was really neat to see this. You know, kind didn't of they, like in also, someone's basement. Didn't basically. they also find a, a bowl? Of, <laughs> so, didn't they also find a bowl of petrified beer nuts? I, you know, if they'd looked hard enough, they'd even find some popcorn, some pretzels. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, did they serve the beer cold or room temperature? Uh, <laughs> was it refrigerated? Probably not 5,000 years ago. Did they find but, Norm? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it made me very happy to read Norm, this article. Norm G. Because we still like beer today. Oh, it's great stuff. Fantastic. You know, in, right. in Vino Veritas, but in Cerveza um, Felicitas. Oh, jeez. I like it. Yeah. I like it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the prerogative and go next here. And you're going to have to follow me on this one because this one is going to jump around. Okay, so uh, mine has to do with something, and you all know I'm famous for mispronouncing it, so you're going to have to help me out. Pres- Presbycusis? Presbycusis. Presbycusis? Presbycusis. Goggle eyes. Goggle eyes? Is it no. with your eyes? No, Presbycusis, and I didn't know what this was, so I had to, I had to look it up. Uh, Presbycusis is the process by which, um, over time, your ears can't hear higher pitch sounds. Oh, yeah. oh right. And right, so right, right. As you as you age, you lose the ability to hear the high tones, higher pitch sounds. This is called presbycusis. Now, I didn't know how to pronounce presbycusis, so I went to one of these online pronunciation things <laughs> and I Uh-oh. pushed the button and it told me how to spell. Say, pronounced presbycusis. And then I thought, well, let me just look up A-N-G-I-N-A. Come again? A-N-G-I-N-A. Angina. Which they say is angina. Angina. they do not. Angina. Or who are they? Angina in the United States. No way. Is this the Google? This is this is this is several websites. Not by American doctors. I understand. This was they said angina in the U.S., but angina was also acceptable. Okay, so fine. 
Wow. But anyway, the, back to where I was. Back to where I was. Presbycusis. Listen, listen back to the episode on uh, heart stents if you want to know why that's funny. Um, anyway, so that came up because I was listening to uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, in which they were doing a story. Uh, they did a joke. One of their you know, punchline jokes was about um, this uh, app that somebody made for an iPhone called the Annoyatine. And the Annoyatine is an app that will, play, will make a high-pitched sound that is really annoying to the ears of a teenager, but adults cannot hear. It's like a kid whistle. Because of press, what did I call it? I think this one annoys. Wait, 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 wait. The reason this was interesting, again, you got to follow me on this, was because, and how does this relate to our jobs in any way, shape, or form, is the fact that about a decade ago, I was sitting in my office. <laughs> no. And every two to three minutes, it felt like there would be this really annoying ping that would go off. And uh, a former employee who doesn't work with us anymore, but she's gone off and other things. She and I sat there for a good hour trying to figure out what this noise was, and we couldn't. And it was a new noise. Because it didn't go off regularly enough for us to be able to find it. <laughs> Hours later, Don Thea revealed to us <laughs> a product called the Annoyatron, I believe it was. That's right. The Annoyatron that he had put in my office that does this, that makes this annoying. Don did this to annoy you. Don did this intentionally to annoy me. Okay. To I'm wrap guilty. this up. I'm guilty. To, to wrap this up and to get back to presp whatever it's presbycusis. Presbycusis, presbycusis. Uh, so I did a little bit more digging on Presbycusis, and in 2006, there was a story on NPR's All Things Considered, this is fantastic, that this guy took this idea of Presbycusis, and what he did was he made a, uh, a, 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 a teen begone device that you could put in stores if you wanted to get rid of the teens that would play this annoying noise. The only teens can and hear it. And only the teens can hear it, and they leave your store because it's painful. <laughs> he develops the device... And kids at, I think it was his daughter's school, find out about this, record the sound or get access to the sound and set it up as the ringtone to their phones so that when it goes off in school, in class, they can hear it and the teachers cannot. <laughs> so clever. It's so brilliant. So clever. It made me so happy when Those I heard about teens. this. My kids were thrilled. And wow. in fact, that individual who used it at that at that convenience store won the Ig Nobel Prize. Fantastic. That uh, the Ig Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> that year. Well, wow, I'm thinking this could really solve my cognitive uh, decline problems because I find like my having kids around all the time is so it makes it so difficult yep. to think. Just yeah. keep you them. Just turn this. This would this be better on. than Prevagen. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Don, what do you got? All right, I, I have a short one. It is a. Um, it's a paper published, again, in the BMJ. Um, the title by... BMJ Ste Christmas edition or yes, BMJ? Christmas. Got it. Uh, Stefan Gwillen, Dominic Howard, Nev Davies, and Keith Willett. The title of the article is Harry Potter Casts a Spell on Accident-Prone Children. Mm, sure. So what they sure, did sure. is they did a retrospective... They work in an emergency room in England. They did a retrospective review of all children aged 7 to 15 who attended their emergency department with musculoskeletal injuries over the summer months of a three-year period. And they looked, they counted the number of weekend admissions between 8 a.m. on Saturday and 8 a.m. on Monday. And they did that to include that period of time inclusive of the launch dates of the two most recent Harry Potter books, oh, The yeah. Order of the Phoenix and The Half-Blood Prince, were Saturday, um, June 21st, 2003, and Saturday, um, July 16th, 2005. And what they found was that there was a marked decrease, decrease. decrease oh. in accident admissions to the emergency so department on those weekends when the Harry Potter book was released. I believe it. That is fantastic. Isn't that amazing? They're not playing soccer. They're staying at home and yeah. sitting in their beanbag yeah. chairs. It's great. Falling out of trees and... By, by the way, you know, going back to that, uh, the study we did on hockey and, and yeah. uh, injuries, 
I, I was uh, searching around, and it's, there is a large literature of heart attacks on yeah. Super Bowl days, yeah, and looking absolutely. at like the winning team versus the losing team, and who has more heart attacks. Oh, like the fans regionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it so it's like and and like impact of a fan enthusiasm on heart attack rates. It's it's, it's quite a field. So can we should, I, so can we should I stop then... being fans. That's <laughs> what we should do. Apparently so. All right. Well, that's a good one. I like that one. All right. Well, so you have reached the end of our program. So <laughs> you've, if you've wasted got... another <laughs> perfectly good hour. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX. Or you can tweet me at, at @profmatfox, or you can tweet Chris at, at id.gill, or Don at, at dthea1. Or can't you, guarantee we'll respond. Oh, yes, you can. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website. That's www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download that next episode. See you next time. See you next time.